Excited to continue our Voyager series. Hey, we're getting near the end of Acts here. And so if you've been with us through the entire book, you have done a full study on the book of Acts. You began with us in September, and here we are kind of getting ready to land the plane over the next few weeks as we enter into August here. Voyagers, ready, willing, and able to do what? To take a leap of faith, to go out to the edge, to stand there and say, God, I'm ready to jump. And and, and what we've done, and I hope you picked up on this, Um, Faith can so often come across as abstract. Do you have the faith? You know, I I, I need faith or this is a person of faith. It can come off a little abstract. What we tried to do is categorize it a little bit so that we can take our faith and put it into situations of our life. And in doing so, we've even labeled it a little bit. We've taken that kind of uh, leadership to, to label a little bit so that we have some memorable language for the moments in our life when we need that faith the most. And so now they're starting to pile up. So I, I put them together here. We've had maybe faith. Fear asks, what will I lose? Faith asks, what will I gain? And we saw Jonathan and his armor bearer. We have furnace faith. Fear says, I'll jump only if. Faith says, I'll jump even if. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Awesome faith. Fear rescinds. It gets up to the edge and says, you know what? I'm not... I don't think I'm going to just kind of... I don't want to fall. Where where faith says, I'm not coming off this wall, the the faith of Nehemiah, a blameless faith, fear thinks, just go ahead, nobody's going to see this, but faith says, God will see this, and I don't want to offend my heavenly father, the faith of Joseph, and then last week, altar faith, fear feels God might withhold, where faith says, God will provide altar faith of Abraham and Isaac as they walked up that hill. And so so we've been kind of taking this and I've even had a chance to meet with different people who said, you know what, we're taking a step in maybe faith and just let let that language there, you know, get into our life and and work towards trusting God and taking these leaps of faith. And and well, today is a different kind of leap of faith. And this is kind of an intimidating one, um, especially because, you know, in all our lives, we have something that if we're honest with ourselves, we'd like to confirm front. We'd like to get more to the story. We'd like to know what's going on with that. We're, we're, we're upset. We don't know what to do. I mean, I'm sure in this room, there's been people who have voiced their frustrations over the past year with different leadership positions or maybe through letters and things like that. And, and it's just something that you feel, I, I need to say something. And, and, and this faith comes when you see something that you feel is wrong, okay? And sometimes you don't feel it. It actually, you can look at scripture and say that is wrong, okay? And and you're feeling called to confront it. What kind of faith takes a step towards confrontation? Because I'll be honest with you, I don't think anybody just loves confrontation. They say there's no such thing as a good leader who is unable to confront something. You need to be able to confront things in your life. And so often things go because parents are unwilling to confront, because friends aren't willing to confront, because business leaders aren't willing to confront. And and that lack of confrontation, in fact, unfortunately, in um, anger culture, all the confrontation is almost all unbiblical, in my opinion, in a lot of things I've been watching. And and so what could we do to make even our confrontations more line up with how God has called his kids to confront things, 
Okay, and, and so today we're going to leverage what we're going to call valiant faith. Do you use the word a lot, valiant? No, right? You know, oh, this is this is our daughter. She's so valiant. Everybody be like, what? What are you talking about, right? These aren't words. I, I threw this at one of the pastors. Say, hey, what do you think of the word valiant? He's like, valiant. You know, he's like, that's what he thinks of, right? Like there's almost like this chivalry aspect to this word. But that's kind of where I want to go with this. There, there's an aspect of chivalry. There's an aspect of respect. There's an aspect of bravery, boldness, courage, valiant faith. And in order to demonstrate valiant faith, we've been very faithful to uh, travel back and forth through the scriptures to leverage stories of faith. I want us to go to a time period about 100 years after the Babylonian Empire or the Babylonian captivity, where the Jews were allowed to return, but not all the Jewish groups returned. Some stayed. In fact, one group of Jews stayed in a, in a city called Susa. Anybody know where we're headed? We're headed into the book of Esther. And in Susa, there is a Persian king who loved, let's just say it, to party, okay? In fact, anybody here hold a 180-day party? Okay, then you ain't balling with him. 100, I mean, seriously, man, right? 180 days. I mean, our country gets upset if our leadership takes like three-day vacations. 180 days, let's party! And during this festival, he is so drunk, okay? If you want to go to like a picture of morality, Esther's not your book, okay? In fact, God's not even mentioned in the book, okay? In fact, you're told the reader is actually challenged to read the book thinking, what is God doing through this? Almost to watch for him. How is he navigating even people with low morality to save his children, and so within this book, uh, uh, within Susa, this king has this party, and he decides, drunk as a skunk, hey, bring my wife in, bring, well, one of my wives in, um, Queen Vashti, I want her to come in and show off her beauty. Now, I'm going to stay, I'm not going to get real graphic, but he's not looking for her just to come in and smile. And she's like, no, I'm not, I'm not coming in and parading myself in front of all his boys. But that doesn't go well with the king. In fact, it angers him so much because he's afraid other women will hear that she didn't come. And so the guys get together and they make this decree that, that, that the men are the, the leaders of their house and this was a shame what's happened to the king. And Vashti's told she can never come before the king again because she said, I'm not gonna, I'm not doing that. So now the king's in a spot he doesn't have any beautiful women, per se, to be around him, and he wants more. And so they hold this beauty pageant, if you will, of the most beautiful girls they can find in the surrounding kingdom, and they enter it. And that's in the story where this guy Mordecai comes in. He took over as a parent figure for Esther when her parents died. And he had been raising her. They were both Jews. And he has this idea that we will enter Esther into this beauty pageant, if you will. And so she's entered, and Esther is, uh, you know, I, I told you last week or two weeks ago that Joseph was a stud. Esther was the type of girl that walks in the room, and everybody knew she walked in the room, it seems. 
I mean, this girl is gorgeous, okay? Because she stands out amongst the most beautiful girls. She stands out. So Esther is just a, a sight to behold. And, and the king spots this. Other leadership spot this. And Esther's chosen not having revealed her Jewish identity. And she's now in the kingdom. And oh, the king loves her so much. It almost seems like he's a little bit obsessed with her if you read the text. And she is elevated even to Queen Esther. And it's during her time where she's in the kingdom that outside the gate, Mordecai is there. And he just happens, you'll see this entire book is a book of, oh, that was a coincidence? No. He happens to hear two royal guards saying, we're going to kill the king. We're going to kill the king. And Mordecai hears this and he sends word to Esther who is now inside the gate and says, let the king know there's a plot against him. And she does. Oh, and Mordecai's name is praised. And something very key happens in the book. The king says, I want it recorded in the king's chronicles that Mordecai saved my life. It's very important in the book because the book is full of ironic happenings. Well, at this same time, there is another man who is being elevated in the kingdom. His name was Haman. And he became very powerful. He's almost like a type of Lucifer in the fact that he loves to be celebrated and, and worshiped and honored. And, and Haman and his men come up with some sort of decree that all the people should bow when they're around Haman. If they see him, they should bow. Yet there's this one guy, Mordecai, who won't bow. It angers Haman so much that he comes up with a decree with his leadership that we are going to kill all of the Jews. For he found Mordecai was a Jew. You know how he decided to do it? Do you remember if, you, if you've read it a while ago? He takes out dice, okay? Takes out die. They call them pur, okay? P-U-R in Hebrew, the die, and he casts the die. And he casts the die. And he casts the die, and he decides, based on this die casting, that the 13th day of Adar, all the Jews will be killed. He takes this decree before the king. It's hit with a signet. Money is offered. The Jews will die. And Mordecai, Mordecai hears of this. And he, and he puts on sackcloth and he goes up to the king's gate and you cannot go into the king's gate with sackcloth. And he goes before the king's gate and with great courage and boldness, he weeps and sheds tears and, and, and takes dirt and throws it. And, and everybody's going, what's going on with the guy down in the, in the courtyard? What's that guy's problem? Esther finds out it's Mordecai. She, she sends, like, what, what's going on? What is he so upset about? And, and he sends word back, the Jews are set to be killed. You have to go before the king. Haman is planning on killing all the Jews on the 13th of Adar. And, and some of the most famous, famous verses in all of Scripture are recorded in Esther chapter 4. She said, she, she commanded him, go to Mordecai and tell him all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, they know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king in 30 days. 
You gotta understand, Esther, Queen Esther, is part of an heirloom, okay? They still need to be called to the king. She's not the girl. She's one of. And she's gotta be called in. She says, I haven't been called in in 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai sent back to them and replied to Esther, and he wrote this. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, it will rise for the Jews from another place. Listen to his faith. But you and your father's house will perish. And, and who knows, who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther told them, tell Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young men will also fast as well. And then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And she writes, and if I perish, I perish. Any Rocky fans? If I die, he dies, right? Esther's, Esther, what? Esther, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther ordered him. She's going in. She's going to go before the king. She's going to demonstrate valiant faith. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Paul is going to stand before King Agrippa and his wife slash sister, Bernice. Let's just say they don't have a biblical worldview. They've got no, no piece of this game per se. And he's going to speak before them. He's going to need to be brave. He's going to need to be bold. He's going to be, need to be courageous. For God has told him, you will speak before kings. You are the prophet of the Gentiles that will speak before some of the greatest leaders in the Gentile land. And maybe, Paul, maybe you've been called for such a time as this. Heavenly Father, use today's text to inspire us to have valiant faith, not angry faith, not mad faith, not demeaning faith, not arrogant faith, not cocky faith, not brash and harsh faith, valiant faith. The faith that moves forward in confrontation in such a way that the message is not only received, but also inspiring so that change can actually occur and opinions not just get thrown out. God, I pray today you'd inspire all of us in that area of life where we might be hesitant, but we feel the spirit knocking to confront something wrong we've allowed in our own life that's been allowed to go on in our home, that's been allowed to go on to somebody we love. And give us that valiant faith that we desperately need in your name, amen. Festus, last week, remember, he goes, I don't see anything here. And he goes up to Agrippa, the king, who is he's from the Herodian line, right? 
And in the Herodian line, he has a lot of Jewish background. And, and Agrippa says, I'd like to hear the man myself. And, and Festus says, tomorrow you will hear him. And, and here is a partial fulfillment of the word God spoke to Paul that says this, go, this is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And so the day comes. And as you can imagine, Agrippa and Bernice come in with a lot of pomp and circumstance, okay? Here they come. They're coming in. And remember, we're at the Herodian Palace, okay? That's on the sea, right? So, so they're coming up probably through this area right here. They're going to meet maybe in this courtyard. They're going to get out into this front area. Paul, you remember his imprisonment was, was back here. This is, this is the, the hippodrome where the athletics occur. So they're coming down this, this thing. And it says, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Anybody who is anybody is gathered there today and Festus stands up and says, Paul has been brought in. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Oh, this huge crowd's gathered and here's Paul standing there. But I found that I had nothing, that he had done nothing deserving death. I'm sure that didn't please the crowd, Festus. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. He's appealed to Caesar. I'm going to send him to Rome. In fact, we're going to pay for his ticket. But I got nothing to write. And we should have something to write if we're going to send him to Caesar. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charge against him. It, it, it seems that Luke wants so much of this written so that we understand the testimony that Paul and Christianity had were truly no threat to the Roman Empire. So it's Agrippa's turn to talk, and he turns to Paul, and he says, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand. That's taking the form of an orator, okay? We don't really do that anymore, but uh, it's taking the form of, you wouldn't want me to talk all Sunday like this? You just want to be good. But, but taking the form of an orator, he stretches it. Keep in mind, he has chains on. So this is probably going to get heavy as he's out there, but he takes the permission, the, 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 the it, opportunity has in front of all these People. It's an incredible opportunity. And, and as Lenski, the one commentator, writes, Paul turned a great hall into a great church that day. And he speaks in what many believe is his greatest message ever given in all of Scripture. In fact, some argue this is some of the best words that have ever been spoken by Paul in this short section. And it'd be so tempting for me to summarize this, okay? But, but I know our church, I know our church loves scripture. And so I'm gonna take the time and we're gonna kind of go through it, okay? I want you to hear his testimony before Agrippa. And just listen to the way he attacks it. 
You're all very informed and good thinkers. I, I listen to what you process, Acts, many of you. I want you to just process, what is Paul trying to do? Take yourself there for a minute, because he says this. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to his boldness. I beg you to listen to me patiently. This isn't going to be short, he's saying. I'm going to speak, and I'm going to get out what I need to get out. And so I wrote in my notes, voyagers must be ready to be bold. Ready to be bold. What is, what is boldness? Boldness is demonstrating courage despite intimidation. Boldness is moving forward despite little anxiousness about it. But voyagers at some point in their life have to say something. It's not okay for them to always say, hey, look, that wasn't really my point to say anything. Look, I didn't want to say anything. Voyagers have to take that stand. Voyagers are the one everybody looks at around the room and goes, man, I hope they say something. Because God has kind of used specific people to say, I'm willing to be bold. Now, unfortunately, those same people are also willing to be arrogant at times. And so we're gonna couple that as we move through the text. But there has to be an opportunity, and will we take the opportunity? And Susa, she walked into the room. It, it says in scripture that Esther walked kind of into the, the, the outer area, and she just stood there, she took her stand. I mean, were her hands shaken? Was she so worried? I mean, after all, she's a queen. Why is she so concerned about the king? I got a feeling she is far more concerned with the crazy people he surrounded himself with, including Haman, than anyone else. And she also knows wicked plots are being sent out by Haman himself. And if you've ever been around in the room with someone who is evil, there is a tension in the room to it. And Esther comes forward and takes her stand, and we all wait. Will the king hold out his scepter? I mean, if he doesn't hold out his scepter, I mean, this is kind of written in Persian law. If he doesn't hold out his scepter, if he doesn't take it and hold it out to her, she dies. And so she comes walking in, and the king sees Esther. Now, he likes to look at Esther. That is very clear when you read the book of Esther. He sees her. It goes right out. There's Esther. Come on in. And this guy, this guy is not only come on in, he's not like, who do you think you are? Right? It's more like, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. I mean, this guy, I mean, he is eaten out of her hand, basically. But, but Esther doesn't know all that, and she knows what he's surrounded by. He holds out, Esther, what do you want? And she says, would you come to my feast? Come to my feast. And would you bring Haman? Oh, no, you didn't, Esther. Oh, yes, she did. Bring Haman. 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 Get Haman out here. Haman comes. We're invited to a feast with Esther. Haman. Of course we are. <laughs> We're the big dogs, right? I mean, this is all going on. Read yourself. Read yourself this afternoon. 
So she calls these two guys together and they're eating, they're making merry, they're having a great night. And, and the king says again, Esther, Esther, what is it? What do you want? I mean, this is great food. This is great, but I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. He won't give the whole kingdom away. It's a little bit of agreement, right? And she says, I will make my request at a banquet I'm going to hold tomorrow. She puts these guys off again. Come back tomorrow, we're gonna have a big banquet and I'll make my request before you. Haman and yourself. Hmm, man, she is treating us good. And so out the king goes. And, and he just can't sleep. He can't sleep that night. The banquet's coming tomorrow. He just can't sleep. I don't know if he's excited to be invited by Esther. I mean, is this guy that pathetic? But, but he can't sleep. He's laying there and he says, who would you read the kingdom's chronicles to me? All the chronicles of the kingdom. There's some good bedtime reading, right? And so the guy gets out the chronicles and begins to read them. And in it, he remembers, oh, that Mordecai saved my life when they were plotting against me. Oh, we should honor Mordecai. And he eventually, we, don't think, we think he fell asleep eventually. Going in the morning, I'm going to find a way to honor Mordecai. But, but Haman walked out of that same feast going, huh, I got invited by Esther, me and the king sitting together. Clearly, all this great stuff is going on. And as he leaves the gate, he spots Mordecai in the street. He's walking by Mordecai. Mordecai's supposed to bow. And Mordecai don't do nothing. And this infuriates Haman. And he contrives an idea to put a 50-foot gallow up. Now, many believe if you study Persian history, those gallows might have been not what you necessarily think are hands through holes, but poles that they would impale them on. And the idea of hanging can also be worded to be impaled and hanging on an impale. So these things would be launched up 50 feet high. Haman puts this up. He's going to kill Mordecai as the night goes down. And they wait for Esther's banquet where she is going to come to them. And she's going to do this, guys. I'm shaking my hands. My hands are trembling. She is going to call out Haman in front of everyone. See, see, I wrote this down here. Boldness is courage in the face of fear. Boldness is courage in the face of fear. I mean, Esther's messing with some pretty big time people, some people who could take her life at any times, but she knows what's right. She's following through what's right. She wants to defend her people and she's going before and taking the opportunity to do so. And that's exactly, exactly what Paul does. I'm gonna take this opportunity. I'm gonna speak up for Christianity. And he says this, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. Everybody knows about me. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul came from pharisaical roots. He was trained by Gamaliel, the great Pharisee. And he says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. I'm banking on the promise that all Jews know to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Isn't that awesome? Why is that hard for you to get? 
And we say, Paul, it seems so hard for people to get. He goes, it's not that hard to get. Herod, you saw it. You know about this. You know Jewish history. Why is it so hard? I stand here because of the hope I put in the prophets. I'm not out on a tree limb somewhere on my own. He said, even I, even I myself, whenever you've shared your testimony, have you ever talked about a time where even you kind of were opposed to God for a season of your life? Paul shares that with the whole crowd. Even I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And there we find out, oh my word, Paul wasn't just a Pharisee. Paul was on the Sanhedrin. He voted to have people killed. He says, he, he just keeps unveiling. He says, and I punish them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to make them turn on God. Paul was someone who says, deny Christ, deny Christ. He goes, I tried and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even into foreign cities. I chased them up to Damascus. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. I mean, what, what, what changed it, Paul? At midday, okay. I saw, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. He's given us extra information we didn't know before, that the others saw the bright light. And when we had fallen onto the ground, they all fell. Yeah, they all fell. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, he spoke to me. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he continues, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. He, he borrowed a term that Agrippa would understand. Paul borrowed a term, he said, Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Believer, if you've got the Holy Spirit residing in you, I'm gonna pump you up for a second. Jesus said, it's hard to try to stop me because you can't, amen? It's hard to kick against the goads. It's hard to stop Jesus when he can't be stopped. You can try to stop him. You can make it look like he's getting stopped. You can come against me with incredible fury. But you know what I do? I take the very people who are persecuting my kids and I can change their lives. Saul, you'll now be Paul. Wow. Jesus is capable of interrupting human history so profoundly that he can stop the most vilest person in their tracks and turn them to the most honorable call in life. Rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeal, appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those who I, which I will appear to you. You are chosen to be my servant for such a time as this, if you will, delivering from you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow, Paul. Jesus can really share the gospel. Here's the gospel. I've come so that sinners would repent and turn to me 
and be placed in the realm of the sanctified, which means those who are set apart to receive an inheritance that is incorruptible for the rest of eternity. Are you part of that? Have you ever approached the God of the universe and said, could you hold out your scepter and listen to me? I have a plea. I want to give you my life. How depressing a life. How depressing a life if God doesn't exist. So then life's just the American dream. Get a couple cars, a couple garages, fill up your bank account and die. Is that all that life is? I mean, the most, the most turned off person to Christianity, which most likely happened because of Christians, not Jesus, but the most turned off person in Christianity, you really think life is just that? Get up, make money, build stuff, try to get man's approval and die. Oh, maybe leave a legacy. That sounds a little more honorable. Is that really, you really think that's it? And we know deep in our soul, Psalms tells us that men know deep in their soul. It's just whether their pride allows it in. And Jesus says to Paul, or Saul at the time, you're not gonna stop me. The gates of hell can't stand against me. I'm unstoppable. You understand something, believer? Jesus has never lost a battle. Doesn't even know how to lose. You serve someone who doesn't know how to lose because he doesn't lose. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly command. But I declare first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple. They tried to kill me. To this day, I have had help from the, that comes from God. And so I stand here to testify both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and the Moses would say would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, I'll do my best, Paul! You're out of your mind. Festus is like, you're nuts. Hey, you're crazy. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're sitting here going, though I'm in chains, I'm actually the free one. Are you nuts? Though Jesus died, he rose again. Are you crazy? This is crazy talk. I'd rather, I'd rather die than turn on Christ. I mean, this guy's just pouring his life out. I once was a Pharisee and I told Christians they must stop, but now I'm out here to celebrate. You're crazy. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking with rational words. Folks, don't be shocked when people think you're nuts. Just don't give them reason to think you're nuts. But Paul said, the gospel's foolishness to the unbeliever. You're not going to talk them through it. You can live it for them, but you're not going to come up with some great hypothesis that they go, based on that, I now believe. It's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit has to do it, and it's got to be an act of faith. For faith is what draws us there. That's why Ephesians reminds us. It's not by works. It's not by anything you did. It's by faith. 
that we come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, which means you've got to place your faith on something you haven't necessarily seen. You've seen the effects of it. You see the, the outcomes of it. But it takes faith. Cherish it. If God has, has blessed you, cherish that. And Paul does something that I can't even believe he does. He, he continues by saying, for the king knows about these things. He's talking to Festus. The king knows about these things, Festus. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He knows about Jesus. He is from the Herodian line. His great, his great father tried to kill Jesus. He knows all about this, Festus. And then Paul, Paul is nuts right here. He goes, and Festus, you know what? You know what? He turns to Agrippa. He goes, listen, look at this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then he doubles down. I know you believe. I wonder if Agrippa like looked over at Bernice. <laughs> How does he know I believe? Do you? I mean, think about this. I came to know Jesus Christ as my savior. Do you believe it? I mean, Paul was an evangelist of evangelists, okay? Do you believe it? He wants a decision from Agrippa. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian? I'm actually thinking about it. Scripture carries the idea that there's an almost in the original language. How many people, how sad is this? How many people, you know, I know it's not popular to say this anymore, but Scripture talks about a place called hell. Okay, you can't avoid it, it's in the Bible. How many people will spend an eternity in hell almost having accepted Christ as their savior? That, that would keep me up at night and I'd need some chronicles read to me. I don't wanna be a preacher that one day it said, ah, oh, Chris, you should have shared it a little more. I want you to ask yourself, have you ever come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Don't, don't leave today. Go before the king and say, I need to repent of my sin and accept Jesus Christ as my personal savior. I don't want to be an almost. I don't want to be, I'm kind of persuaded. I want to take a leap. I want to, if he's going to say I'm crazy, don't worry about everybody. It's about you. I mean, my parents are going to think of it. Don't worry about it. It's about you. It's about you. This is your decision. I want to take a leap of faith and jump. How do I know I can trust him? Well, if you've been with us through our Acts series, can you not see God is faithful even when it seems that all is lost? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me in this day might become such as I, except these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and all those who were with him and they went and they deliberated. What will be the verdict? I put in my notes, not only does a voyager need to be ready to be bold, but they need to be willing to be courageous. There comes times where courage is demanded as we await a verdict. Courage means I keep moving forward despite the fact I don't know the verdict. Courage means the doctor said there's a problem with me and I'm waiting the tests and now I have to walk in faith. Courage says we put in our application 
We don't know the verdict, but we're going to walk in faith. Courage carries this idea that I'm willing to step out and do something, even if I have to await the verdict. The king woke up that morning in Susa. And he had a plan. I'm going to honor Mordecai, who was brought up in the Chronicles. When Haman gets in, I'm going to tell him. Haman went to bed going, I'm going to impale Mordecai on a pole. He wakes up and comes into the king. I'm sure Haman and, and the king talked about the banquet that was coming that night that Esther was holding. I wonder what she's going to ask us. But, 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 but the king says to Haman, what would you do for a man who wanted to tremendously honor? And Haman's thinking, God would be talking about me. Well, I would walk him around the streets and say, this is what's done to a man, and I'd give him pomp and circumstance, and I'd have somebody yelling out in front of him, this is how the king treats a man with whom he is greatly pleased. And the king's like, mm, that's great, Haman. Do that for Mordecai. <laughs> so Haman got the horse, put Mordecai on it, and walked him around the street the man who refused to bow to him. Do you really think God doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> Why do you think you laugh? Those who are created in the image of God. Because God laughs. Jesus is going to smile at you someday. Can you think of the moment in glory when you have a good laugh with your heavenly father and your savior? He's walking this arrogant man around the town going, this is how the king treats someone whom he delights in, Mordecai. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Sight and sound should do something like this. <laughs> Esther's banquet's there. Haman's interrupted from his whining and moaning in his home. Come on, we gotta go to the banquet. Haman and the king sit down. The banquet's in the hall and Esther gets up. She says, okay. He goes, what? Esther, what? There's someone who's plotting against my people. He has put money on this. He's going to kill them on the 13th of Adar. And he says, oh! And she goes, Haman. And he goes, I mean, sir, this is like, what? She does it and so that there's no, there is no way for him to get out of this. It's him. And the king, being drunk once again, he has literally drunk the entire book. In a furious rage, orders that the very pole that Haman set up for Mordecai would be the pole that would be where Haman's death occurs. And so he was taken outside to the gate Esther is given Haman's house. Mordecai is raised to an elevation, but the 13th of Adar is still coming. See, what many people forget, there is a second approach by Esther in the book where the scepter has to be held out. So once again, she has to go before the king and wait for the scepter. But, but you know our king. Esther, come on in. I mean, that is literally what's going on. And she comes before him and says, the 13th of Adar is still coming. And she starts to plea with him. You can't allow this to happen. You have to reverse the decree. He says, Esther, I can't reverse the decree. You can't reverse a decree like that. She says, please, we can't let my people die. Haman still has people planning on the 13th of Adar, regardless of the fact he's dead. They're going to come and kill us. You can't let this happen. Courage does not mean you don't have fear. Courage means you don't let the fear stop you. 
How many people think all these courageous people of Scripture never had any fear? They had fear all the time. If you're scared, you're actually in really good company. The greatest warrior in Scripture, Joshua, was afraid and weak. That's why God had to say, be strong and courageous. The king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing wrong. To deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I would set him free, Festus. But he appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he has to go. There must have been something in Roman law that once you appeal to Caesar, it must be put through. And so Agrippa goes, I got my, I got my verdict, not guilty. But he's gotta go to Caesar. And so, Scripture says, it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, that deliver, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarked a ship of Andromedium. And off they would go into the very dangerous waters heading towards Rome, where God said Paul would go. Will he be able to have valiant faith? Will it hold up? The 13th of Adar comes. The king says to Esther, here's what we'll do. Tell the Jews they can defend themselves. Tell them to fight. And they gather together and they begin to fight back Haman's men that he plotted against them. They took over all of it and they won the victory. Mordecai and Esther are elevated to the highest places and they call it a feast. And they called this feast to celebrate the day the Jews won the 13th of Adar. They called it the Feast of, does anybody remember what the dice were called? The Pur? The Feast of Pur Him. Pur Him. The ironic nature of Esther is thorough. The man who cast the die on God's kids, you dare cast die on my kids. Any dads out there? You dare cast die on my kids. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We will celebrate a feast on the day you cast a die against my kids. Who do you think you are? You cannot kick against the goats. The ones who know they have a massive God can operate with valiant faith, even though everything around them seems to be falling apart. The story of Esther is that God's promises to his people can be trusted despite everything looking the opposite. But I noticed something. Every step of faith demanded courage. There was a fear to it. But it was what they truly wanted. It was on the other side of fear. I wrote this, everything you want is on the other side of fear. It's not my quote, but I love it. Everything you want. I have found in my life, the things I'm most scared of is usually what God has called me to. And so it's going to be a decision if I confront something to do it in fear or to do it in faith. I learned something from Esther. Fear is afraid to act. Faith is afraid not to act. Isn't that interesting? Fear sees pressure as a problem. I don't want all this pressure on my life. F 
Faith sees pressure as a privilege. I have an awesome opportunity. Fear bemoans. Oh, I'm here for such a time like this. Maybe you've been doing that at your job. I'm here when the company's falling apart. I'm here when this is going on. Come on. Faith resolves, am I here for such a time as this? Is this why I'm in this moment right now? Fear appeals to excuses in adversity. Hey, I can't go before the king. It hasn't been 30 days. I mean, the king's gonna kill me if I come. Faith appeals to prayer. Pray for me for three days. Fast, pray. I'm going in, and if I perish, I perish. Fear denies responsibility. Fear accepts responsibility. You're right, Mordecai. I might be here for such a time as this. Valiant faith demands a valiant approach for such a time as this. Maybe you're a young person, you'll be in school this fall, and all the kids are making fun of another kid. They'll listen to you, but you've been quiet. You've been watching it going on. You know it's not right. And you're in this friend group, and you think to yourself, is it possible that I'm in this circle to stand up that kid for such a time as this? Maybe you're a young girl out there and you just heard that your friend says she's having a baby. She doesn't know what to do. Boyfriend took off on her. She's all alone. She's got a choice to make. You know what Psalm 139 says. You know the Lord said, I knit you together in your mother's womb. She's got a decision to make and maybe you're her friend. Maybe you're her friend for such a time as this. Maybe you're a college student out there. You know, you know what that professor is saying is absolutely against the things of God. He's making a mockery of them, and you don't want to ever embarrass leadership for that. It's never how a child of God should approach. But you might have a moment, and maybe you're in that class for such a time as this. Maybe your husband of three kids and your own dad isn't treating the family correctly and you know it and you've been letting it go. And you go, oh my goodness, I've got to do this. But maybe, maybe this is the moment for such a time as this. But, but maybe, maybe you haven't shared the gospel with your friend. Maybe you haven't shared the gospel with your adult best friend. Maybe you haven't shared the gospel with someone at work. And I'm going to tell you, Everybody's a tough guy until it's time to share the gospel, including me, okay? But maybe you're at that job. Maybe you're in that workplace. Maybe you're at that school. Maybe you're in that room. Maybe you're in that basement hangout for such a time as this. So as you approach, remember the truth of Scripture. There are seven verses that have helped steer me because in my life, I have to confront, even if I don't want to. I don't know how many times I've heard my wife say, well, if you don't say something, who's gonna say something? And I go, no one. I'm just so sick of being the bad guy. So you gotta say something. If you feel that strongly, you gotta say something. Okay, well then, and I don't, I fail but here's verses I should have as anchors. 
Accept responsibility. Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Be gentle. Keep watch for yourself, lest you too be tempted. When I go to someone, I need to accept responsibility because I'm called at times to, to say something because I love them. So I think, how can I approach responsibly and say something, but do it gently? That's valiant. Look out for their interests, not just yours. I know what I'll do. I'll hang them on a pole outside the street of the church. Look out for their interests. Do nothing from selfish ambition but vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than themselves. yourselves. Let each of you look not only your own interests, but also the interests. If you were doing something wrong, somebody was going to confront you. How would you want them to do it? You should think through that. How can I do this in such a way that they can be restored? How can I do this to protect them from embarrassment? How can I do this so I'm not being too hard on them? Should be things that a child of God thinks through, not, oh, I'm going to tear them up and have the whole world go, oh! The whole world might go, oh, yeah! And God might go, oh, man. That's another lost opportunity. Meet personally and privately. Matthew says, if your brother sins against you, go and, find a go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, don't make it a big crowd unless you have to, the rest of the text goes. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Make it per keep it small. Don't expand it out. How many times have you got a problem with somebody you've already told 50 people before you go to them? Why do you do that? I'm trying to petition people against them. Why do you do that? Because I want everybody to feel bad for me. Why do you do that? I was sharing a prayer request. Could you pray for him? He's such a jerk. <laughs> me personally and privately. Don't let the devil win. Resolve to speak with grace. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building them up as it fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. When I go, Lord, I want to speak with grace. I want grace to be in my mouth. I'm not going to go and be mean and confront, be nasty and harsh. I'm going to let no corrupt communication come out of my mouth. These are great guards. Inspire with solutions. There's nothing worse than coming to leadership with no solution. Think through solutions, not just problems. Let us consider how may we stir or spur one another on to love and good deeds, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Trust me, if you're going to approach any kind of leadership, you're going to want to take the angle that it looks like they made the decision. I'm just giving you a little heads up on life there if you don't know that. Many of you are going, oh, I know that. You're going to have to make it look like they did it in order to have it go through because otherwise you knocked over a massive wall of ego. Inspire. I want to inspire you to do it. They may not, but at least you came with a solution. Look for perspective. The one who states his case first seems right until the other examines him. I can't tell you how many times I've had different people come with different things and go, can I give you the perspective of that? And they go, oh, okay, all right, well, never mind. Thanks for doing a great job. There is so often so much more perspective to what you see in decision-making that you should come with any kind of confrontation. Sweetheart, school called today, and they said, um... Um, you uh, grabbed the girl's chair and hit her over the head with it. Um, we were kind of like, 
you're, you're just grounded for two years. Mom, the girl punched me in the face. Oh, what? what? Well, you still shouldn't have slammed the chair of him, but what, what, there was more to this? There's more to the story, Mom. Now, hopefully that never happened to anybody in this room. That's why I did such an, a weird one. Because I didn't want to do one and goes, he knows about it. Oh, my word. <laughs> Mom, Mom, he knows, he knows. You, did Dad tell him? And then finally, hope in the reward. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, listen, this is so beautiful, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I want to be someone Jesus uses to bring them back, not to browbeat them. I got my own problems. Have you ever heard the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Shouldn't it be love the sinner and hate our own sin? Shouldn't we be more concerned about our own sin? So before you're ready to confront, Jesus says, be careful. How you judge others is how I will judge you. Let's give grace. Let's hope to restore. Let's be valiant and do it the right way. Let's have a valiant faith. And maybe, just maybe this week, God's gonna give you an opportunity to share the gospel. And you're gonna ask yourself, God, will you give me valiant faith? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study not only life of a great book in scripture, but the valiant faith of the Apostle Paul. When given the opportunity to stand before a king, shared his testimony, and shared it with such courage and boldness and confidence. But we hear throughout, most excellent Felix, you know Agrippa, his respect for the people he was around won him an audience. His passion to speak boldly about his own failings and his own mistakes won empathy. But his confidence to say, I will share the gospel enabled him to fulfill his mission for part of the reason he's been called before kings was that he would be a testimony of the gospel to the Gentile nations. He was your voice for such a time as this. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in the room who doesn't know Jesus as their personal savior, that you brought them into this auditorium today to repent and turn from their sins and call upon the name of the Lord that they might be saved for they may have visited this place for such a time as this.